Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for grace as we enter into Acts chapter 10 and as we observe the fruition of the plan that was first explicitly stated in Abraham as you covenanted with him. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought the nations into the church Because if this were not true, we would not be in the church, Lord. We thank you that you do, in fact, have people in all nations of every tribe, of every tongue, of every ethnicity. And I pray that you give us grace as we learn these things from your word. I pray that you give us supernatural understanding of the strategy that you have employed in this book thus far and of what we will observe in Acts 10 as well. You are a mighty general and your wisdom is from everlasting. Help us to appreciate these things in this time and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In turning the page to Acts chapter 10, we are entering into a passage where so much of the status quo changes that I think really it is impossible to even compare this with any other single event. In fact, I think that a very strong argument can be made that nowhere else in Scripture is there an example of this level of transformation in the way that the people of God worship Him. And that includes Calvary, and hear me out on this one. While Jesus' passion and resurrection is unquestionably the greatest event in history, most of its effects, the greatest of which was salvation, had already been felt since Eden. As Abraham was saved by faith per Romans 4, so it was with Adam, because Adam was undeniably reconciled. And that has never occurred apart from or by any other means than faith. And that comes through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, certainly post-crucifixion and resurrection, much changed about how we relate to God and serve him. Certainly more power in sanctification. That's why it's called baptism of the Spirit, being immersed in the Spirit. That has real, tangible effects in Christian living. But in the truest sense, Christ crucified and risen on the third day was the real-time actualization of events whose effects had been experienced for millennia by that time. But what we will study today 
is the total ecclesiastical upheaval brought by Christ and him crucified and risen on the third day, but not ever experienced in this way before Acts chapter 10. And despite what the dispensationalists may tell you, in an ancient religion such as ours is, with a God such as ours who is from everlasting to everlasting and cannot change, it isn't actually a normal thing for whole paradigms to shift radically, as is the case in our passage. But this paradigm change has not spawned from nothing, as of course would not and could not be the case, considering that God foretells the progression of our faith in his word. Prophecies about major defining events in our religion are often misunderstood, but they will always at least be present in scripture. And they in fact will be present to greater or lesser degree depending upon the scale of the event at issue. And as indicated, the scale of this is mammoth. And so word of this shift goes back even further than the much clarifying Mosaic covenant. This promise is as old as Abraham and the covenant made to him. The nations are about to meet their maker to salvific effect by faith and repentance because of and through the singular seed of Abraham per Genesis chapter 22, and that is Christ. But up to now in redemptive history, there have been relative hints of this and whispers. And I say relative because it hasn't actually been hinted at. It's been spoken of very clearly through the prophets and through many of the prophets. But it's a relative whisper to what's going to happen now in Acts chapter 10. This is a shout. I'm going to begin by reading all of Acts 10 to you for the sake of context. It's lengthy, but I want you to get that. Understand, though, that we're not going to be covering nearly all of this. We will be in this section for some weeks. Today, we are going to be focusing in on the call and preparation of the two men that are most directly involved in this seismic occurrence in the life and pertaining to the nature of the church. Uh, We will reference Peter here this week, but we will emphasize Cornelius, and then next week we will flip the script on that. Um, But with this to the text we go. Acts chapter 10, we'll start in verse 1 and go all the way through. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And now the word for Lord there is loosely equal to sir in English so that you understand That's not um, a reference to God. But going on, and he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, As they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures on the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. 
What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, which seems to be sort of a pattern in Peter's life. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging, and on the next day he got up and went with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked, for what reason you have sent for me? Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea, So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What an invitation. Every evangelist is jealous as they read this. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on the cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who had been appointed by God as a judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. 
for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Oh, I feel like ending the sermon there. Just saying we can all depart. Now, we will exegete this, but before we really get into it, there's a sort of high-level issue that I'd like to point out to you. I had to take a relatively significant amount of time to do so. This relates to the doctrine of election, because there's a very common misconception about election that is corrected by this text, and really the events of Acts as a whole, but certainly those which have occurred up to now, and include the events which we are presently examining. Now, it is a glorious truth that however God chose whom he chose from eternity past to be his children by faith and repentance, he did not choose us on account of our inerrant moral virtue. And he did not do so precisely because we have none. So he didn't choose me over the next guy because I was better than the next guy to begin with and didn't require so much work. We all require the same amount of work because we are all by nature sinners. Manifest to different degrees and in different ways, but by nature we are the same, and it is our nature that is the problem. But it does not, therefore, follow that God's choosing of one soul and not another is arbitrary. And the Arminians will make this claim. Even some confused Calvinists will sort of suggest this. God is not arbitrary. He is not capricious, not in any way, certainly not when it comes to electing souls. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not a God of confusion. Consider also Proverbs 3, 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth, by understanding he established the heavens. Pray tell, if he established the heavens by wisdom, is he not also filling highest heaven by wisdom as well? Of course he is. Now, do I understand all of this wisdom and how it works itself out? Of course not. Do I understand some of it? Well, sure, I think so. As you know, we are fighting in a spiritual war. Who is our general in this war? You can say God generally, I think more accurately Christ because he's the one building our church, but both work, both are true. So does our general, though, operate on the basis of strategy or happenstance? Surely strategy. The success of God's work only ever depended upon one man, but clearly he does choose certain men and women on account of their stations or their backgrounds or their skill sets or even their lack of skills. Jesus prayed this to the Father. He reveals these things to infants. And he does this strategically for the purpose of laying bare the foolishness of what is falsely called wisdom. And this strategic choosing is not difficult to prove from Acts. It is, in fact, the inevitable conclusion of the events if they are observed rightly. And I'll demonstrate this to you through a few examples, moving forward chronologically and culminating in Cornelius. And I've selected these, but there are many more. The first, though, example that I'm going to start with is Peter. Peter was a fisherman. And as such, when he becomes an apostle, he shatters the pretensions of the elites. Does not have the right background, does not have the right education, does not come from the right rabbi, does not have the right familial line, according to the powers that be. Now, they could deny his teaching, and they in fact did, but they could not successfully undermine his credibility because of the attestation of God wrought wonders through him, which is the same problem that they had with Jesus. 
Hard to call a man a liar when the power of God is that manifest in him. So Peter demonstrates to the people that the elites have become obsolete and thus their grip on power is loosened through his example. To this end, in part, but not in whole, he was chosen. God being a God of order and God being absolute in power accomplishes his will every time. So if you want to know his will in choosing a certain person over another, the results observed in hindsight are certainly a legitimate teacher. Now, you do have to be careful here because there is an issue of your analysis and whether it is right. But certainly we may know something as we consider the results of what moved the Lord to take a certain course. Again, this doesn't answer every question. It doesn't answer the question of why Peter specifically and not some other Jewish fisherman who fit that general bill would have been chosen. But at least we do understand something of why the type of man that Peter represents was chosen. Okay, so that's Peter. Next, consider Saul. Saul, in contrast to Peter, was an elite. And so if Peter demonstrated that the Sanhedrin's status earned its members nothing from God, Saul demonstrated that their status did not keep them from God. Their wisdom was supposed to be so uniquely divine and uniquely compelling that deconversions and defections would be impossible. They survived as the socio-religious political ruling class and maintained their power by vigorously defending as fact the supremacy of their teaching, and not just supremacy, but the infallibility of their teaching, the insurmountable nature of it. And yet in one who is not less well-educated in their ways than the high priest himself, it has been surmounted. And this happened in the most shocking, jarring, and irrefutable way possible. He was going to a certain town to kill Christians, and instead he ended up preaching Christ crucified when he arrived there. And this whole, uh, you know, manifesting the supremacy of the true wisdom of God in contrast to what they were offering up in such a visceral way. This is why they hated him to the extent that they did. So much so that after 15 days in Jerusalem, they were already trying to kill him, as we observed recently. And so while God, as general, is dismantling the apostasy of the Sanhedrin from two different angles, through the example of Peter and Saul, he, through Cornelius, is about to reach even further into Satan's ranks by demonstrating that not only are they not better than the fishermen, Not only are they not better than the Samaritans who have experienced revival up to this point in this narrative, they're not even better than the Gentiles who are about to receive en masse the most precious and transformational wisdom of God that there is, which is the wisdom that is necessary to know Him. Now, elites in every context hate it when the commoners are given the best information. For example, the worst thing that ever happened to the Roman Catholic Church was the printing press. It didn't matter if you chained the Word of God to a lectern of some type. People had their own copy now. They lost the censorship battle. And that meant the beginning of the end of their religious hegemony. And going back to the situation with the Sanhedrin, that's exactly what's happening with them as well. With the dissemination of God's wisdom to the commoners, and in fact, common isn't actually the word that they would use for the Gentiles, because from their perspective, this is more like uncommonly reviled. And yet in Cornelius, the Lord has chosen exactly the kind of man that faithful Jewish Christians would want as the first major Gentile ambassador to the church. 
Now behind this man, the floodgates are going to open and there is going to be the most glorious cloud of witnesses comprised of the most previously filthy demographic of humanity you've ever seen. Behind Cornelius, there's coming the ex-Sodomites, the temple prostitutes, the ex-Sodomites who were at the same time temple prostitutes, kind of people whose testimony would make modern politicians wince. But Cornelius himself is not some face-tattooed rehab hopper. Look again to the text, verses 21 and 22. Peter said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you've come? And they said, Cornelius' servants, Cornelius the centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Now don't get me wrong here. Cornelius is a wretched sinner. And the assessment of righteous is made man to man from a human's perspective about another human. This is not God's perspective upon Cornelius. He is not saying that Cornelius has in himself the necessary righteousness to effectuate his own salvation. Cornelius is of exactly the same nature as the ex-Sodomite and ex-everything else. But his inclusion in the church is not nearly so jarring as any of those would have been. And this is very much strategic. God will make Christ's worst enemies kneel at his feet. But for the man who will first represent the Gentile wave that is about to hit the church, he chooses one who has not plumbed the depths of wickedness, but has responded to all the light that he has been given as best as any unbeliever could. And he is just waiting for somebody like Peter to show up and give him the rest. God's approach to dismantling false religion through Saul was jarring. He shocked the system. He threw a wrench into the gears and the whole engine just fell apart. But his approach to building his church in ways not previously understood is far more gentle. And Saul becoming Paul, he hit the Sanhedrin with an earthquake. He is not hitting his dear bride in the same way. He's not hitting her at all. He is giving her a gentle lesson. Because with exception to circumcision and food, Cornelius honors Jewish customs as much as a Gentile can. He's there for the holy days, more than likely. He's there for at least a certain number of Sabbaths. Whatever he doesn't practice beyond that, he still esteems. And very importantly, the man is not at all sympathetic to any pagan deities. He has rejected all of this in favor of the simplicity of the monotheistic system of the Jews. So they like him already at least as much as they like any Gentile. But this is not all of what makes him strategic. Cornelius isn't just going to be Christ's Gentile ambassador to the church. He's also going to be Christ's foremost ambassador to his fellow Gentiles and namely to the Roman army because Cornelius doesn't fit in with the Jews because he's not really a Roman. He is a dyed-in-the-wool Roman, minus all the paganism. He is a centurion in Caesar's army. And as the name implies, he is therefore the commander of 100 men. So he is not then a man of insignificant influence. And even the name Cornelius is a tribute to Rome's greatness. It's something like if you named your kid George Washington, being an American. Romans revered a certain P. Cornelius Sulla, who freed 10,000 slaves more than a century prior to the events of Acts chapter 10. And it is evidently this man that our Cornelius is named after as a tribute to him. 
And as a brief aside here, I do think that that fact creates a wonderful irony, considering that through this man's witness, no doubt many souls will be freed from sin's slavery. But am I saying here that Rome's army's forthcoming submission to King Jesus that will come in a mere two and a half centuries under Constantine is all attributable to Cornelius? No. Likely much of it is, but even in the testimony of the New Testament, this is not the first Roman soldier to be targeted by Christ, is it? And because we have been recognizing God's strategic overthrow of Satan's kingdom, we should note that God has had his eye on the Roman military for quite some time. Do you recall John the Baptist baptizing a couple Roman soldiers and sending them on their way with a new Christian ethic? Do you remember also the first recorded incident in Scripture where our Lord evangelized a Gentile? This could come up in a Bible trivia game someday, so you may want to listen. You'll never guess who that first Gentile was. It was another Roman centurion. And it was with reference to that centurion that Jesus said after that interaction, and as a consequence of it, Matthew eight ten through 12, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's Cornelius, the first one and the second one, and all the people that they represent. But then he goes on and he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the astute observer of Scripture and culture should recognize that what they're witnessing in Cornelius' conversion is the continuation of Christ conquering institutional Rome from within. He will bring it to its knees without ever drawing a sword, without ever commanding an infantry. Now, in our day, we are witnessing an ideological purge of our institutions, not in a positive direction. Okay, the government is being purged, the judiciary, the military... You need to understand that what Satan is doing now, he's doing as an imitator. King Jesus was the originator, and nobody does it like the king. And by the way, to be able to successfully keep one foot in each of these worlds tells you a lot about the character of Cornelius and a lot about why he was chosen. Again, he is well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews and obviously well regarded also by the Romans. That is quite a feat considering how opposed these two groups are to each other. To the Jews, the Romans are a foreign occupation. And to the Romans, the Jews are a tremendous annoyance to say the least. And in fact, at this point in history, that whole dynamic that you see between Pilate and the Sanhedrin, it has worn very thin. They are not so sympathetic anymore. Pilate's successors. You also have the difference between sexual ethics, polytheism versus monotheism, oil and water. And yet the man with one foot in each world threads this needle with tremendous success, and this is consistent also with his station. In the Roman army, different kinds of men were chosen to be placed in different positions. And we have a sense of this now, right? Special forces guys, probably not the same kind of guy as the pilot. Sergeant's probably different than a general. And aside from skill set, certain positions are just better suited to certain personality types than are others. Uh, For the rank of centurion, you get a record of their nature and of their type from a man named 
Polybius, and evidently Cornelius fit the following bill very, very well. Polybius describes centurions as, quote, not so much venturesome daredevils as natural leaders of a steady and sedate spirit, not so much men who will initiate attacks and open the battle as men who will hold their ground when worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to die at their post. That is Cornelius' nature, it is his character, and it is difficult not to respect a man like that, and indeed he was respected, and that's why he was chosen. To the Romans, he was a credit to Rome. To the Jews, he was considered a rare credit to the Gentiles. So Satan is being outflanked at every turn. With the Jewish rulers, God's sovereign appointments have devastated their propaganda about who can teach and what is wisdom. And concerning Jewish perspectives on the Gentiles, their propaganda about who can become a child of God and receive that wisdom and to what extent they can become God's child has been dismantled also. And even the Roman soldiers who have often done their wicked bidding, most notably in murdering Christ, are becoming Christians now. So in conclusion of this thought, while all of God's purposes behind election are beyond us, some are not. And if you cannot see the design of God in this in Acts, I, I'm not sure what else I could give you in order to persuade you more fully. And I will give you one final note here. Arminians have no explanation for this except for, isn't God lucky? Isn't God lucky that Peter was so well positioned to cast down their pretensions concerning the elite class? Aren't God lucky that Paul was able to do so on the other side? Isn't God lucky that Cornelius had one foot in each world? No, God was not lucky. There's another word for that. It's called sovereign. God is sovereign. It was an exercise of his sovereignty and immortal wisdom. Now, with these things understood, let's consider that God is preparing Cornelius and why, and then we will examine how God is preparing him. So first off, there definitely needs to be a preparation for something like this. Okay, the Gentiles being brought into the church is a massive uh, deal. And God is a God of order, as we said, and so he's not going to upend the system like this without explanation. And this is especially true when it comes to previously sinful practices now being cleansed, which is what is happening. Now, Cornelius here may not be as shocked about these developments as Peter because he wasn't raised as a Jew. He hasn't been uh, inculcated into this system in the same way, but certainly he must have been shocked as well. And for more than just the fact that an angel of God appeared and essentially yelled Cornelius, that would be enough to freak anybody out. But also, the message would be extremely alarming. Cornelius obviously understands the angel to mean that he is to invite Peter into his home. That is why his servants say as much when they meet Peter. Again, verse 22, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Now, Cornelius is not in, uh, ignorant about the implications of this. Okay, he is a God-fearer, says the text. That means that he is not a proselyte. Okay? So he's not fully a part of them as much as a Gentile can be, probably on account of not being thrilled about circumcision for obvious reasons, but in most other ways he is religiously Jewish. He certainly observed the Sabbath, though to what degree we don't know exactly, but at any rate he's definitely been at the temple to know that 
at no point is an after-church potluck going to be held at his house. They're not coming over. As a practical means of honoring the command of God, Jews did not enter the houses of Gentiles. And this was right. And I'll be stressing this whole fact when we go through Peter. Peter was right prior to the visions to live the way that he did. Okay, this was how God kept Israel holy. If you are even a passive reader of the Old Testament, you know full well that when Jews commiserated with Gentiles, it ended badly. It bred spiritual corruption. And besides that, Gentiles were known to commit abortions and then bury the children somewhere in their homes. And Jews were considered unclean if they were in the presence of a corpse. And besides that, if you can't eat with people because of dietary laws, your fellowship with them is greatly curtailed, which was the point of the dietary laws. So not only did Peter need his vision from God, because otherwise he never would have entertained this invitation, but Cornelius needed his vision because without it, he never would have sent it. Okay, Cornelius did not get to be well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews by offending the snot out of them, by sending them inappropriate invitations like this. When he knows full well that in order for them to receive that invitation, they'd be violating God's law. So that's why Cornelius needed the divine intervention slash preparation. But consider now what the Lord used to prepare him, and that was prayer. Verse 3, pick up again. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision the angel of God who had come in and said to him, Cornelius, unfixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And by the way, as we start here, the when of this prayer time is very telling. Okay, devout Jews prayed at multiple times a day, and those times were set according to a clock, and three o'clock, which is when this is, was the most important time of prayer for them. And Cornelius, consistent with what he has learned in the temple, is bowing his head and praying in earnest. But does God hear this unbeliever? Yes, obviously. Verse 4 again, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. But this presents a unique conundrum to us, doesn't it? Because how can one who is not washed by the blood be heard by God? On account of, there are many places, I'll just give you a couple, Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Well, what about in an instance when a person's whole heart is wicked? As is the case in every unbeliever which Cornelius still is at this juncture. Consider also Ephesians 3.12. In Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Cornelius is not a member of that we yet. So how does he have any access at all? And it is undeniably heard prior to faith in Jesus. Well, upon closer examination, the conundrum sort of settles down. And the issue is pretty simple because the primary matter here is one of the nature of the prayer that he is praying. When unbelievers pray, they pray as follows. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may stand it, spend it on your pleasures. Long time ago, there was a Bible study 
that I headed at Dunkin' Donuts that eventually grew into this church. And uh, Brad and I believe Ryan were both there when I was giving the gospel to a gentleman, and he was explaining to me that he was superficially religious, I guess, and he was telling me that he prayed to God. Ani was telling me the content of his prayer generally. He prayed for blessings to his children. He prayed for financial blessings uh, for himself, things of that nature. And I interjected and interrupted him, and I said, you have never prayed to God. And he just looked at me sideways, and I said, that audience is given to the people of God. But I did say, there is one prayer that God will hear from you. And that is a sincere crying out for salvation, a broken and contrite heart. He will no wise cast out. That's the true sinner's prayer. And the Lord does hear that, and He uses that as a means of bringing salvation. Psalm 51 is a great example of this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge and he says down in verse 14 deliver me from blood guiltiness O God the God of my salvation then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness Behold in Cornelius such a broken and contrite heart. Clearly, Cornelius' prayers were answered, but no record of the prayer itself is extant in the text. However, not to worry, because the result of the prayer that was answered is, pick up in verse 34, back to our text in Acts 10, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. What is this? It's the gospel. That's the answer to the prayer. That is what Cornelius prayed for, and that is what Cornelius was given. And another aspect to this issue is to understand what prayers of petition really are. Okay? Prayer is cyclical. It's a circle. I think most people generally recognize this, but what they get wrong is they make themselves the beginning of the circle, and then they offer up to God whatever request it is, and then God sends back down an answer. They are the beginning and the end of this cycle. This is unfortunately often the case, but it's only the case because most prayers are prayed poorly and with poor understanding and not in a manner that's consistent with Scripture. Not in a not thy will, or rather uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven type of manner. Now, good prayer is a circle, but God is the beginning and the end, and we are the middle. Okay? He is the one that puts into our hearts to pray a certain thing, and we recite that back to him. And if that offends you, I'd ask you why it is that you think you can do better than God. Can you know better than God? 
No, so you want to pray exactly what the Lord puts in your heart to pray. Nehemiah is a great example of this. As he says over and over and over again, the Lord put into my heart, the Lord put into my heart. So is Cornelius. All right, this is the breaking down of the barrier of the dividing wall that's about to happen here. Do you think that the Lord just let this to Cornelius, to a matter of his will, hoping that he would pray what he needed to pray so that the Lord would intervene in the way that he needed to? This is the dismantling of that barrier between peoples that has been prophesied about forever, of course. This started with God. Of course, it was the Holy Spirit who put these words into his mouth. God put it into Cornelius' heart to pray for truth. That is what he prayed for, and we know that is what he's prayed for because the text tells us that his prayers were answered, and that's how his prayers were answered. Now, at this point, let me say something again that you are probably tired of hearing me say, and I would apologize for repeating myself, but I'm a preacher of the gospel, so I repeat myself every week. It's kind of a part of the job. But I am befuddled and perplexed and greatly vexed by any unbeliever who says, God has not saved me, so I can do nothing. And I raised this point when we went through the example of the Ethiopian eunuch. You can do nothing to achieve salvation, but you can do much to position yourself to receive it. The Ethiopian eunuch went to the temple. He bought himself a very expensive copy of Isaiah. We have free apps now. Look at that. Cornelius is at the temple because that is the best place that he knows of to receive truth. And it is through that that the Lord gave him truth. You cannot save yourself. You can put yourself around the means of salvation. And that is your responsibility as an unbeliever. And I have no respect for the unbeliever who will say, I want salvation, I want salvation, but I will not commit to that course of action. How long is it worth going through these exercises for your soul? I would think it would be worth more than anything else. Put yourself in a position to hear the word that Cornelius heard over and over and over again. Because souls are funny things. You can hear a truth from a certain direction and it's not received. And then you hear it from another and it's still not received. But then one day the Lord takes it and massages it into your soul and your heart and your mind from a different direction and you are illuminated. Here's a man who's not even an unbeliever who's banging at heaven's door at the hour of prayer, just like everybody else. He doesn't have any saving light, but he has enough light to at least know to do that, and so do you. And I pray that you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text today. We thank you for what you're doing here through Cornelius. We thank you for the testimony of Peter. I do help. I, I do pray that you help me rightly divide these things as we move forward, Lord, because there is so much in it. And a right interpretation of it is so critical. And Father, I pray for those among us who don't know you, that they would come to know you even today. That you would speak to them where they are at. That you would soften their hearts and souls and enable them to receive saving grace 
by the power of your spirit. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.